turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, and we come now to the end of the book of Jonah. And just as a reminder of what we've seen so far in this chapter, the first four verses really show us the depth of Jonah's sin that he had allowed to take root in his heart, allowing the root of bitterness towards the people of Nineveh to grow. Then in verses 5-9, through we see God give Jonah this object lesson in sovereignty and mercy in the giving and taking away of the gourd. Well, now we come to the conclusion of this interaction between God and Jonah. So hear now the inspired and infallible Word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than sixscore thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Thus far the reading of God's Word, let us ask His blessing upon it once again. Father God, we come unto Thee and we thank Thee for this Word which Thou hast given us. This Word which Thou hast kept pure and preserved through all ages. O Lord, we ask the blessing would be upon the reading of this Word today. That it would go forth and enter into our hearts and sink deeply within, take root, Lord, cause it to flourish within us. O Lord, let us hear the preaching of this Word rightly. Understanding that it is not the minister who speaks these things to us, but it is the Spirit working through the minister that teaches us all things that we should know. O Lord, teach us this day. Feed us with Thy Word. Let it be sweet as honey. Sweeter even than the honey from the honeycomb. O Lord, let us treasure this Word. Nourish us and strengthen us. And bless our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the ending of this book can seem quite strange to us. We're so used to stories having uh, such neat resolutions. Many of the books of the Bible end either in the story being wrapped up in a, in a nice uh, bow or being given, uh, ending with, with us being given some great truth to hold on to. However, the book of Jonah does neither of these. 
We would expect to see the interaction between God and Jonah end in some sort of resolution with Jonah going back to Israel as a repentant man to fulfill the remainder of his days as a prophet of the Lord. But here we see that's not the ending that God has given us. Instead, this book ends with a question. And so this likely seems pretty odd to you. We don't seem to or we don't typically end stories in a question. It's not some statement of the Lord closing out the chapter, but instead a question which ought to cause us to think more deeply about the things that we've seen thus far. It ought to cause us to think more about the man Jonah and his actions from his first fleeing the presence of the Lord to his time in the belly of the great fish to his preaching of the Word of the Lord unto the Ninevites to his great conversation that closes out this story. It should cause you to think more deeply about the character of God and how His sovereignty plays out in the world. So the Lord delivers unto Jonah this question so as to reorient his perspective of what has just taken place. And friends, this is what this question ought to do for you as well. Because far too often our own perspectives can get skewed and we need to be reoriented by the gentle, tender rebuke of our Lord. This question of God to His prophet ought to cause you to consider how is it that any of us are the recipients of the Lord's mercies? And so we'll take up this question of the Lord, should I not spare? And we'll do so by considering three headings. First, God as the sovereign Creator. Next, God as the sovereign Redeemer. And finally, man as the objects of mercy. So first, God as the sovereign Creator. It's interesting uh, here to see the contrast that is shown here in this text between Jonah and Jehovah. The structure of these two verses is essentially God saying, Thou, Jonah did these things when you had no right to. Should not I, Jehovah, do these things when I have the right to? These are parallel parts of this question which point out to the prophet that he has clearly missed something important due to his flawed perspective. And so God begins His defense, if you will, of His actions by appealing to His being the sovereign Creator. And within that context, He gives four reasons of why He can show mercy to whom He will show mercy. And the first reason that God gives is that He personally made the objects of mercy. 
In the first part of verse 10, we read, Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. Here God reminds Jonah that what he has received in this plant that grew up to give him shade while he was waiting to see what would happen to the city of Nineveh, it was none of his own work. He says that Jonah had pity on the gourd for which he did not labor. He did none of the hard work for this plant. He did none of the toil. He hadn't even lifted a single finger in order to receive this plant. He did nothing to deserve the benefit of it. He didn't plant the gourd, nor did he water it, nor did he tend it in order to see it grow. And yet, he receives the benefits of it. But God did do all of these things. God sovereignly created that plant and caused it to grow abundantly and caused it to provide benefits to Jonah. And so we see how God was so personally involved in the making of this gourd. How much more so is He personally involved in caring for those whom He has created, not as gourds, but in His own image? How much more of a right does God have to take pity on those who are created in His own image, whom He crafted Himself? In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, we read, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And then the next reason that is given uh, is that because God is the sovereign creator, his creation is valued greatly by him. Verse 10 goes on to say, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Here God describes the brevity of the life of the plant itself. It existed for the briefest of moments, and it sounds silly to say, but Jonah really had no chance to truly appreciate the value of this plant because of how briefly it existed. It was a commodity. It was entirely expendable. And worst of all, Jonah only pitied the demise of it because of the value that he had placed on it because of the benefits that it had given him, which is, by the way, not a great way to value something. It had no intrinsic value. 
But God truly values the people of Nineveh far more greatly than a commodity by virtue of being made in His image. Every one of us possesses a far greater value than some plant which only provides its value by what it does for you. Jonah's concern for a plant is trivial in comparison with all that is at stake in the destruction of the great city of Nineveh. The point that God is making is that He has not only created all things, but He has given this particular part of His creation great value and great dignity. God greatly values things beyond their mere benefit to Him. This is so different than how we value things. We typically attribute value based on what it can do for me. It's dangerous to view this wor- uh, to view the world in this way, especially, especially when you're talking about people. You must see here uh, that that God shifts. Uh, Jonah's focus away from valuing things based on what they can do for him to now valuing them for what they are as the greatest of God's creation. No human is merely a a tool or a means to offer some sort of benefit to others. We are living beings. We have creative capacities no matter how darkened our hearts are prior to receiving God's mercy. And so God has every good reason to have mercy upon whomever He will have mercy. The third reason is that God as sovereign Creator desires no man to die. Let alone such a great number. Look at the first part of verse eleven, and should I not, uh, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? He turns to his own concern for the people of Nineveh. And now he points out to Jonah the very large population of this city. God is explaining to Jonah the great and terrible thing that would have happened had Jonah not preached and had they not repented. And so when he points out the size of the city of Nineveh, he's showing just how great the fall of Nineveh would have been. God has every reason because of how great this fall would have been had He overthrown the city to say, I'm going to have mercy because of their value and I'm going to give them an opportunity. 
Of course, that's no different than how God treats Israel at this very same time. God says to the people of Israel in Ezekiel 33 and verses 10 and 11, Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? God desires no man to die, and he has every uh, he has a very good reason, therefore, to show mercy to whomever he will show mercy. And finally, the fourth reason is that God, as the sovereign creator, looks upon the people and he sees their pitiful, ignorant estate. Look at verse 11 again. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? This is likely speaking of uh, the 120,000 not being the total number of the people of Nineveh, but instead only the number of those who are infants. Those who did not know their right from wrong, their right hand from their left. There were 120,000 babes who, yes, they were guilty of sin because they are fallen creatures as well. But they are innocent of the great wickedness of the people of Nineveh. They did not contribute to the sins of that nation. And yet, if the Lord had destroyed it, they would have been destroyed as well. Does not the Lord have a right to look upon the pitiful, ignorant estate of His creation and have mercy upon them. And to add to this, He also mentions the cattle. That they are innocent parties in this as well. Will God suffer the innocent to perish with the wicked together? And so in God's eyes, this was a factor that increased His compassion. They're in a pitiful, ignorant state. There's nothing in these four reasons that are, that are particular to the Ninevites. As though one of the reasons that God showed mercy to them was because they were Ninevites. Because they were Assyrians. No. God's reason for showing mercy to whom He will show mercy is because He is the Sovereign Lord who has created everything. And so Jonah is given this lesson in the school of Jehovah that He is sovereign and will do whatsoever He pleases. 
And this plays out as God as sovereign redeemer. This is what the whole of Scripture testifies to. God as sovereign redeemer. And He redeems whosoever He wills through His gracious covenant. We cannot take the sovereignty and mercy of God to some extreme and say that God is so merciful that He just redeems everyone. No, this would be absurd. Universalism is not the conclusion because salvation comes by way of the gracious covenant of the Redeemer. God has freely committed Himself to save whomever He will, but He's done so by uh, He's done so in a way that He's revealed to us that requires something from us that God grants to us. We have to remember that when God made His covenant with Israel, it wasn't because of anything that was good or valuable or meritorious within them. In fact, God tells us this in Deuteronomy 7 and verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye are the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses reminds the people that the reason that God has shown mercy to them is because of the promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. It's because of God's good pleasure that He established His covenant with them. Not because of anything that they did. But more than that, God committed Himself unilaterally to make the promises of this covenant secure. For we know in Genesis 15 when Abraham severed the animals and put them opposite each other and whoever walked between them was sealing the covenants uh, and promising to uphold them that he was the one that was on the hook. And it's only God in the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch who goes through the pieces. God commits Himself to see the promises through. To be the sovereign Redeemer and to bear the penalties for His people. Jonah knows this. He remembers that God has covenanted with His people. And what God is trying to remind him is that you have to have these two things in place. Yes, I'm covenanted with Israel. God has chosen to save a people. And yet it has nothing to do with their age or their race or their social status or anything. It is God as Sovereign Redeemer who makes His covenant for His own purpose. 
Jonah should have known that God's promise to Abraham included that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And so what this book here is reminding us is that, is that God's sovereignty, though, though not universally unbounded, is far wider than we could ever imagine. That God would include in His covenant promises more than just ethnic Israel. He would bless the nations. And so we see when Christ comes, it reminds us that these promises go out not just for you and for your children, but for those who are far off to include all who will call upon the name of the Lord, as Peter says in Acts 2. So how is it then that anyone is saved? God has covenanted with a people that all those who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from their sins will be saved. God's sovereignty as Redeemer of all mankind makes real the possibility that all will hear the Gospel. God's sovereignty as Redeemer means that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to keep these things in your minds because they will keep you from the narrowness of Jonah or from the wideness of universalism. They ought to remind you of the grace of the Gospel that it's through Jesus, your sovereign Redeemer, that you have life with God now. You must praise God for that. That truth must produce in you worship of Him. So what are you going to do about it now that you are the objects of God's mercy? That's what the implication of all of this book comes to. It ends with a question to ask us, how are you going to put in place the truths that are laid out in the book of Jonah? Well, the first and most important thing you must do is be devoted to God. This is the root problem that Jonah has had. We've talked about his loss of perspective that it's because he's forgotten that he is a creature of mercy too. Because he's forgotten the wholeness and the wideness of God's mercy. He's forgotten how God's character plays out in the world. And so the antidote to that is to be devoted to God. How do you do that? You immerse yourself in God's means of grace. Very simply, you read your Bible, you pray, and you do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Read your Bible. This is how you will know God and you will know how you relate to God. And the more you read it, the more it will change you because 
when you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit is the one who's reading to you. And you see more and more that you are changed by it. God has opened, and then God has opened up a way for you to come to Him. To come to His throne of grace. And that is to pray. Be in communion with Him as you struggle through the hard parts of your lives. And also, as you go through the good parts. Sharing and giving glory to God for the good parts of your lives as well. And don't neglect the gathering of the saints. Come through the come to the throne of grace and give glory to God for what He has done and for who He is. We read, we pray, we sing, we see God's Word in action and it changes us. And we become devoted to God quite simply by faithfully following these things now. It's simple, but it's not easy. It requires commitment from you. It requires energy. It requires attention. It requires you to actually follow through. And the beauty of it is that God gives you the grace to do it to do that as well. So you ask that God would give you the grace and the strength to be devoted to Him. And not only should you be devoted to God in light of the mercies given to you, but you should declare His Word. You must declare God's Word. Your lives have to be more than just contemplative. You can't just meditate on the glories of God and think that that's enough. And I know you know this. It's not enough to be content with personal holiness. You must actively declare the Word of God to each other within the church. When we gather together, we're not just individuals who happen to attend the same worship service and that's it. You're connected. And not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout your entire week. You are still the body of Christ. Though you, be, you may be scattered you must be vitally connected with each other. And what you do is you use those means of grace that God has given to you to declare His Word to each other. So when you bear up one another's burdens, you don't do that apart from God's Word and what it has to say. But it's more than that, as good as it may be to focus on building one another up in, uh, within the church. God's vision is much more expansive than that. 
You must declare God's Word not only within the church, but without the church as well. You ought to be telling your neighbors about Jesus. You don't need to go into the mission field to be a missionary. You need to go out your front door and you need to tell somebody about the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must find ways to declare God's Word in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in your family, wherever you may be. And lastly, you must display God's love. So you're devoted to God, you declare His Word, and you display His love. And I understand that this world is against us. The enemies of Christ have no love for you. And yet that doesn't mean that you don't go and love your neighbor. You love in the face of opposition. This is why Christ tells us in Luke 6.28, Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. You must do more than speak words. You must live your lives tangibly in the display of the love of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good works out of the thankfulness of your heart that you have been freed from the dominion of sin and slavery to the fear of death. Even if they hate you, you just show forth God's love because you're being conformed to the image of His Son who died for you while you hated Him. That's the beauty of the Gospel. That's ultimately the message that is prompted by this question. If God is going to show mercy to you in, uh, to your enemies, how will you respond? How will you respond? You who have received such a great salvation. You must remain devoted to Him. You must declare His Word. And you must display His love. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we close this final chapter of the story of this prophet, that you've learned something from our brother Jonah. The Lord chose to give us this man, this imperfect man, to teach us so, uh, so great of truths about His own sovereignty and about our own frailty. Let us take the truths that we have seen in this book and let us seek to walk daily in them, ever trusting the sovereign hand of Jehovah to guide us on this path. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we do come unto Thee once again.
And we are so thankful for the mercy which we have had shown unto us that while we were sinners, while we hated Him, while we were yet His enemies, Christ died for us. And as we see the Lord's sovereign uh, hand pour forth mercy upon our enemies, let us, O Lord, not be like Jonah who despised the day of salvation. But let us be as those angels in heaven who rejoice over one soul that enters into glory. Oh Lord, we pray that we would learn from this book that Thou art God and we are but mere men. Let us seek to ever serve Thee wholeheartedly. Oh Lord, let these truths sink into our hearts. And let us apply them as we go forth throughout our week, seeking to live our lives for Thee. Give us the strength to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.